Dylan Culver, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Neil Connor. Good to be on. Delighted to have you on. Uh, tell me, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Crumlin. Um, so spent the first 26, 27 years of my life in Crumlin. So uh, my mother's side of the family would have all been dubs. Um, she would have grown up just around the corner. Um, her mother would have been from the inner city, lived in the tenements. Um, and then my dad's side of the family are all pretty much from Leash. So he would have grown up in Port Leash. So I'm a bit of a mongrel. Um, I've gone back. I've gone back to the sticks now. I'm back uh, in Kildare. So uh, I've left the city of Scarford. Very good. Um, how would you describe your childhood? Oh, great. Brilliant. Um, you know, I was very lucky. You know, like my parents were very, very good. I was very lucky to be in a very stable home, a very supportive, loving, caring home. And um, my parents from a very early age always tried to feed my interests, whatever that would be. They would try to encourage them, try to reward it. To them, I don't think it mattered what I got interested in, uh, as long as it was above board. They just wanted to see me passionate about something. So, you know, in the early years, that would have been reading. And um, later on, that would have been music. And then afterwards, it would have been psychology. So, uh, no, absolutely brilliant. I, I can't complain. I, I like that I, I came from... You know, I always say I do come from a working class background. You know, my family have worked very, very hard to give me the opportunities that they have. And um, I would have been the first person in my family to go straight into college. Um, my dad returned to college when he was in his, his 30s. He would have been the first to do that in his family. So it's been great. I'm, I'm standing on the shelf as a giant. So I've been very lucky that way. Um, so, yeah, I, I can't complain. Um, what inspired you to choose a career in behavioral psychology? Well, I, I suppose initially it was psychology, broadly speaking. I, I didn't narrow down my interest into behavior analysis, uh, behavioral psychology, until I started doing postgrad work or towards the end of my undergrad. I suppose the reason that I was really interested in psychology, you know, going through secondary school, would have been due to the fact I always found it amazing all the incredible things the human race could do. I remember I said it to my principal when he asked me why I was interested in psychology. Uh, I said, I was interested in it because I was amazed that, you know, we've managed to put a man on the moon, but yet we don't really understand what goes on between his ears all that well. And it was just a bit of a mystery. It was a problem to solve. It was a bit of a frontier in terms of knowledge. And um, I wanted to understand people. I wanted to understand what made people tick. And even now, even though it took me a few years to kind of get there, I can see what I was really trying to do at an early age was I was looking at these personalities and these icons and pioneers and high performers. And I was trying to understand what made them so different. I was trying to understand what made them capable of doing things that maybe nobody else was capable of doing. I didn't realize that I was trying to decode that recipe so early on, but as I progressed and maybe kind of matured a little bit, I realized that was the, the little nugget that I was most interested in. In terms of shifting into behavioral psychology, um, I was very lucky. I did my undergrad in Maynooth University. I had some great, great lectures. That department would have been, you know, very deeply driven by an allegiance, I suppose, to behavior analysis and, and the behavioral outlook. I had some great classes with who would go on to be my supervisor, Brian Roach. And I just, I loved his perspective on all things. And when I learned that that perspective was informed by behavioral psychology, I knew that was my lane because it was very functional, it was practical, it was grounded, it was it was very deeply and stringently empirically based. Mm. 
Um, and that offered me a degree, of, it offered me a toolkit, I suppose, to attack big questions in a way that I could get reliable answers that I could hang my hat on. And some of the things that turned me off in psychology early days would have been what I might call the fluffier side of psychology and the less experimentally substantiated side of psychology. That didn't really grab my interest. It was the hard facts are as close as we can get to the hard facts. That's what I wanted and to get behavioral psychology gave me, as I said, the toolkit to get after those answers. So evidence-based psychology that's measurable um results orientated 100 percent. so the behavior perspective is really characterized by its hard scientific approach Mm. and there's pros and cons to that and there's certain questions that behavioral psychology will maybe not ask there's certain topics and themes that they will not investigate because i suppose they will not engage with that type of knowledge (laughs) per se can you give me an example and um, so like one of the things that behavioral psychology would have a big difficulty with is um, looking at hypothetical constructs or um, invoking mentalistic accounts for behavior. So exactly as you said, the behavioral approach wants to deal with everything we can observe, that we can mm. see, that we can hear, that we can measure in some way. We want to look at things that are out in the open because we know we can be reasonably sure about how those things work, the mechanics of those things because they're um, accessible to our senses really that's that's empirical science whereas if you go into some areas and um, they're a little bit more comfortable and um, invoking as i said hypothetical constructs something that we can't see something that we maybe can't directly access measure and using those as an explanation for behavior and um, so like a lot of the, a lot of my work would have been informed by say people like B.F. Skinner, which people might be familiar with. And essentially what he would say is often we invoke a middleman to explain behavior where we don't need to. That middleman is often a hypothetical construct. Mm. So, for example, I, I tend to use um, this particular kind of, I suppose, example with my students when trying to explain this point. And if you look at a dog, and try to explain its behavior. We will very often look back at its learning history to, to try to understand why is that dog behaving that way? Perhaps it's an aggressive dog. You might look at that and think, well, the reason he's demonstrating that aggressive behavior mm. is due to the fact that that has been rewarding in some way in its past. That's been useful to him. He had to protect himself. He had to feed himself, whatever it is. And that's a very direct kind of explanation. And it's a very clear out in the open explanation. The reason this behavior is being demonstrated is because it has worked well in the past. Yet when we look at human behavior, we often invoke this middleman between, say, a learning history and a current behavior. Mm. And so, for example, we might say, well, that kid is throwing a temper tantrum due to the fact that they have low levels of emotional control or they are deeply frustrated or I have a low threshold for frustration, whatever it is. We have this middle part that somehow explains the temper tantrum. Now, that's fine. Some people are okay with that. And um, But because this is not out in the open, sometimes we can lose the run of ourselves and sometimes we can make unsupported claims or we can diverge a little bit from reality, some might say, or, or direct evidence. Mm. A behavioral account would be, well, this kid is, is demonstrating a temper tantrum not because of any of this internal mentalistic stuff that may well indeed exist. We're just not that interested in it. 
Rather, mm. this temper tantrum is occurring because in previous instances, going back into their learning history, previous instances of temper tantrums were fruitful, they're profitable. The kid throws the toys out of the pram and gets a chocolate bar, whatever it is. Not that you should be, if your kid's in a pram, you shouldn't be giving them chocolate, but you get the point that I'm making. And then that feeds literally the behavior going forward. They've learned, okay, if I pick up a fuss here, I'll get something good out of it. We would kind of say, do we need that middle part? Do we need to say that there's something else that mediates the relationship between previous experiences and current behavior? A behavioral approach might say, mm, we might not need that. There might be stuff there that can be investigated, that can be documented and all that sort of stuff. We're just not as, we're just not as certain that it works the way people are saying it, but we can see previous behavior and we know we can understand that well and we can kind of produce reliable conclusions and predictions off the back of it. So that would be one kind of example, if that makes sense. What can you tell me about your, your PhD thesis, human intelligence and relational skills training? What, we, what was the research about and what were you looking to uncover? So um, this is probably another good example of how we can take a behavioral approach and maybe bring it into the domain that it traditionally wouldn't be at home in, I suppose. Mm. Um, so what I suppose sparked it off was um, kind of two mentors of mine, Brian Roach, who I mentioned previously, and then also Sarah Cassidy, who does some really great work. And they, as part of Sarah's PhD, roughly about 10 years before I started, and started to look at the idea of, well, can we... Can we take intelligence and break it down into a skill set? Again, exactly what we're talking about. Something that's observable, something that's out in the open. Because traditionally, for the best part of 100 years, longer even, intelligence has been one of the most difficult to define um, constructs that there are. And mm. there has been controversy and debate raging over precisely what intelligence is. Much of the time, this debate and this disagreement is born out of very abstract understandings of intelligence. What Sarah and Brian were trying to do is look at intelligence and trying to say, okay, we can talk all day about what intelligence is and isn't in some sort of conceptual sense, mm. or why don't we just have a look at, well, what are intelligent people capable of? What are the building blocks of intelligent behavior or intellectual performance? Bringing it back out to the open. So they did some great work there. Once they had kind of broken down intelligence into a skill set known as relational responding or relational skills, and they learned that, well, these skills are amenable to training. So essentially what relational skills are, they refer to your ability to understand relationships between stimuli. So things like same, opposite, greater than, less than, before, after. If we look at all of the different things, all the different faculties that have been proposed to constitute intelligence, much of them rest on that foundation. If we look at things like, you know, logical reasoning, if we look at um, mathematical reasoning, if we look at vocabulary and all these different things, things that are core facets of most traditional views of intelligence, they seem to reside or rest on this platform of relational skills. The great thing about relational skills is that they're, as I said, open to training. We can make these better. So a lot of what Sarah did was looking at this skill set and trying to figure out how do we improve it? And if we improve it, does intelligence improve as a result? And because for, again, about 100 years, there has been the notion that intelligence is fixed. You have what you have. It doesn't really improve. It develops throughout childhood. 
but you kind of have a ceiling that's fixed most likely genetically. Mm. So smart parents have smart kids. If your parents aren't that smart, tough luck, that type of idea. We didn't like that. So I followed on that line and tried to flesh out our understanding of both relational skills and the relationship to intelligence and also push the boundaries of, well, can we improve intelligence across different populations? Sarah found that she could do it with kids who have various diagnoses of say learning difficulties, intellectual difficulties, developmental difficulties, um, and children, generally speaking. One of the first questions I asked was, well, what about adults? What about high IQ individuals? Um, and I suppose just try to flesh out our knowledge that way. So really, really interesting and really, really enjoyable. We produce some, I would like to think, reasonably good work. We publish some reasonably good work. And I suppose it, it um, led to greater understandings of this technology, this approach and its implications for intelligence, broadly speaking. IQ is fixed, right? Can, can it be improved over time? Yes. Can scores be improved? Uh, well, yeah. Um, not. I don't know. I don't know whether everybody else would be as interested in the nitty gritty of this. Mm. But um, when we look at IQ, um, that's a standardized measure of intelligence. Mm. So what it's going to do is it's going to give an indication of your relative level of uh, intellectual performance in comparison your age matched peers so okay. i'm 30 i'll get a score in comparison to other people in their late 20s early 30s okay but this is the example that i tend to use it's not a measure of absolute ability so if me and let's say my dad both did an iq test right after this interview mm. and let's say we both got a score of 100 people would tend to interpret that as oh you're just you're neck and neck you're just as intelligent as each other the score of 100 means that you score above 50% of your age peers and below 50% of your age peers. And that's important. It's a relative measure. Now, based on kind of maturation and based on developmental trajectory of intelligence, and we are actually being compared against different reference groups with a different standard of ability. Mm. So we see a lot of intellectual abilities kind of peak roughly around my age. And they will have declined for a few years by the time you get to my dad's age, not to mm. embarrass him or anything like that. And um, he won't like me saying that. Never mind. And um, so what is actually happening is I'm getting compared against a greater and um, a more impressive sample than he is. Mm. So it would be like saying Man City, who win the Premier League, they came first. That because their position was first, the best team in the championship. They're equally talented, which is obviously not the case. There's a different sample. So what yeah. we see is intelligence changes over time. And IQ measures are intentionally designed to make sure that the average individual scores and gets a score of 100. Now, that's not shady. It sounds kind of shady conspiracy stuff. Mm. But it's just so that the measure has value. So when we look at these um, longitudinal studies saying, okay, we took a sample of 18-year-olds we got all their IQs, then we tested them again 30, 40 years down the line, and their IQs are basically identical. People then tend to interpret that as, well, their intelligence level didn't change. It stayed static. That's not mm. the case. They mm. declined slightly, as you would expect developmentally. Alongside that, then we see an awful lot of research showing that early life experiences, you know, developmental factors can have an influence on boosting your IQ. Mm. So... There's a lot of work that's now starting to point to the fact that the, the idea that IQ 
which is a statistical uh, subtraction, uh, abstraction, is stable, is actually just an artifact of the test, not an artifact of human capabilities, human intelligence. And um, so our research is starting to show, as well as other pockets of other research streams starting to show that actually maybe that's not true at all. Maybe intelligence can be impacted, can be improved. My work with Sarah and Brian, we showed that with kids, we can increase IQ 20, 25 points, relatively reliably. And mm. um, with adults, I've worked with people who have IQs of 140, 150. You know, they're nearly getting every answer right on the IQ test at this stage. Mm. And we can still boost it. Not to the same magnitude, but we can still get them 7, 8, 10, 12 points. Fairly reliably. Okay, More research needs to be done, but we have about 10, 15 years of research pointing in that direction now. So to answer your question, can IQ be improved? We definitely think so. And obviously early childhood intervention could make a significant impact, right? Well, that's where we, we tend to see the biggest benefits of mm. the program. So even in my PhD, I did work with adults, but one of the most impactful studies that I did, maybe what I would like to think had the most impressive results, were working with kids that are from the age of about seven, eight, up to roughly about 10. Mm. Um, so not that early in intervention, but still, um, these were kids who are attending remedial support, additional educational support. So traditionally speaking, if we're looking at an IQ ranking, they were at the lower end of the spectrum. They were behind their peers. These would be IQs kind of in the early 80s, low, uh, late 70s. So some of, were, 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 some of these kids would have dyslexia diagnoses and stuff like that. Mm. We saw big impacts there, like strong, strong uh, impacts there. Or we were able with this program to boost their IQ up to match the rest of their class. We got them up to average level. In some cases, that was a 20 point jump. So you're taking a kid from scoring in perhaps, you know, let's say lower than 90% of his age peers, mm. scoring lower than 40 or 50% of his age peers. And that is, I don't want to say life changing. But mm. that is a big, big difference. And that can have massive knock-on effects later on in life. So yeah, a lot of the research is pointing towards the earlier we get them, the, the bigger the impact of the program. And what kind of coaching techniques? Is it one-on-one -on -one tuition? How would you work with them at that stage? What, what techniques would you deploy? So um, most of the programs that kind of address this skill set are actually fully automated. Okay. And... Um, so in most cases, there's different formats for this. In most cases, it would involve the presentation of, some people might know them as logical syllogisms. So the type of problem like A is bigger than B, B mm. is bigger than C, is C bigger than A? That sort of thing. People are familiar with that. Yeah. We train that with a bunch of different relations and we do it typically online. Mm. We'll have different training levels that address very specific relational skills within that looking at very precise forms of reasoning and problem solving within that kind of network of relationships between stimuli and we have fairly strict passing criteria so um if a student is going to progress through the training it means that they've mastered a skill we don't have training make sure they master the skill so say with that and um, with that particular study I supervised all sessions. I'd have about 15 kids in a classroom. They would have tablets in front of them. They would log on to the level that they need to start on that day. And they'd work through the program. The program would guide them through it. And I was there for support, but 
I didn't really give them coaching. I didn't give them training because it was an assessment of the program rather than an assessment of me. But typically that's what it is. It's automated. The program guides them through, gives them positive reinforcement, identifies what it is that they got wrong and helps them build up the necessary skills. And are you working with the education system the hate, um, in, in Ireland here? Or is this, are you working? How are you finding these kids? Are you in the schools? What's going on there? So there's a lot of different pockets of research getting done. So this this particular stream of research did start um, in Ireland. Mm. But we've had uh, research studies now done in Scandinavia. We have research studies done in the Middle East. Um, a good friend of mine is working on an international kind of collaboration with um, places in Belgium, places in England, places in Ireland. So, um, yeah, basically what it is, it tends to be individual schools that have gotten mm. in touch heard a little bit about this you know we had some radio coverage you know there's the website and stuff there and got in touch and said we want this for our kids fantastic um, yeah um okay um i want to ask you about elite performance right um yeah. i know you do a lot of work at a high performance level taking groups individuals from a high performance level to an elite level would i, would I, would I be right in summarizing that is that, uh, is that a fair well, assessment Broadly speaking, yeah. Um, to chop it up a bit more finely, I would say that I just work with individuals trying to improve upon their current level. Right. So, um, yeah, that could be at quite a high level, national, international level. That could be at local level. Um, I will work with pretty much anybody who wants to better their best. That's what I tend to say. Um, would you do, in, in terms of an initial, an initial assessment, what are you looking to uncover there? Are we looking at childhood uh, experiences? What would your initial assessment be with a high-level athlete? What would it look like? So well, it's kind of a two-pronged approach. So before I even speak to somebody, before we have a one-on-one -on -one session, um, what I tend to do is I send them on what I call my psychological scout report. Um, and what this is, is an assessment battery looking at an awful lot of different psychological, emotional, motivational, social variables um, that I have identified as being quite crucial to success in pretty much any field and mm. um, there's going to be context specific factors for your chosen field whatever that is but i found an awful lot of research that tends to circulate around this core set of skills as being advantages regardless of whether you're a business person a musician a sports person an academic it doesn't matter so i tend to give them that assessment and that will look at um either their outlook on life that will look at their current level of personality and um, mm. it will look at what currently motivates them. Uh, it look at resilience. It will look at perceptions of control and self-belief and all these different types of things. And what I tend to do with that is I then compile a report and I tend to identify maybe their three greatest strengths. These are things we can lean on. Then I might identify a few things that I think could be holding them back a little bit. Things that might be obstacles and things that might be barriers to them reaching a higher level of performance. And so we tend to do that. It also gives me information on how to communicate with the individual because I'm all for ensuring that we can integrate my strategies and into their practice, their rehearsal, their career, whatever it is, as seamlessly as possible. So I have to figure out what will make sense to them, what will motivate them, what they value. This assessment gives me that. I understand who they are as a person, not just, I suppose, what they're capable of. We do that. And then the first session with an individual, I'll go through the report and then I might start to delve a little bit deeper into the type of things that you're mentioning there. 
I might try to understand and add a little bit of color to some of the scores that I'm getting. Scores are going to be cold. Um, I want to try to understand a little bit of the bigger picture around that. So that could center around goals. That could center around, well, why are you interested in this career, this profession, this sport? And um, it could delve into anything that I didn't pick up on, maybe on the assessment battery. Um, so that's where we start to get into the nitty gritty that way. What are, in terms of the most common psychological challenges, um, are there things that repeat themselves over and over again when you're talking to high level, say, elite performers? What are the most common, um, most common things you're you're dealing with psychologically? Uh, to be honest with you, the thing that jumps out now, I'm working with a few teams at the minute, um, GAA teams, um, younger. Um, athletes rather than seasoned experienced athletes like the thing that pops up an awful lot will be no surprise to people is performance anxiety that is coming up an awful lot and so we see that some of these individuals even though they love say their sport in this instance I'm, I'm talking specifically about sport they may love their sport. They may love training, but when game day comes around, mm. it stops being rewarding for them. And, and not only do they kind of get tight and, and hung up, but they, they lose the joy of it. And, and over a long period of time, not only is that going to have implications on the pitch in a sporting context, stress, anxiety, undermines fine motor performance, mm. reduces higher levels of fatigue, all those physical motor impacts. But in the long run, you know, when setbacks start to pile up, if you're not getting that boost of enjoyment from actually mm. engaging in the activity, commitment drops, discipline drops, people disengage. And um, so that's definitely one, particularly with younger performers, younger athletes. And um, another thing that I tend to see, and it's quite surprising for people maybe to hear, is one of the key psychological variables that I'm always very interested in because it's impactful across domains is self-efficacy. And people might understand that as self-belief. Self-efficacy refers to the confidence you have in your ability to overcome challenges, to perform um, at a high level. And I tend to see really high-level athletes, really skilled athletes with quite low levels of self-efficacy. And particularly a subset of self-efficacy called coping self-efficacy. I look at action self-efficacy and coping self-efficacy. And um, action self-efficacy refers in a basic, basically your belief in your skill level. Do you think you're good at what you do? A lot of time, these high-level athletes, these high-level performers score highly on that one. But on mm. coping self-efficacy, we see a, a clear drop. Coping self-efficacy refers to your confidence in dealing with unforeseen, unexpected circumstances, things going wrong. And for a sports person, that could be something as simple as the weather or making a mistake early, or maybe, you know, tweaking uh, a muscle or having to deal with that. For somebody else going into an interview, say professionally, that could be getting a bit of a curveball question, things not going the way you expected. Mm. Over the last few months, there are the two that have jumped out at me, performance anxiety and hope and self-efficacy. So fairly emotional variables, really, I would say. So the performance anxiety piece, perhaps the individual is anticipating some kind of catastrophe right they're a failure at the point they need to be at their best they've done all this training they've put in all this work but they see a potential unknown uh disaster which produces perhaps a fight or flight response uh, essentially that's what it tends to culminate in yeah that if we talk about the stress response the fight or flight response 
the real issue of performance anxiety is that it boosts that response and that has ramifications for physical performance emotional well-being so performance anxiety can come from multiple different sources you know, or it can be catalyzed by very different perspectives or predictions about what's going on. And it's all about, I suppose, on an individual level, understanding what that is. What is the catastrophe? And mm. um, what has happened previously? What are you, mm. you so worried about? Sometimes athletes are very clear on that. Sometimes they might say, I let somebody down. Maybe I don't live up to my potential. In a professional um, capacity, it could be things like, oh, this is my last chance to get that promotion. If I, if I don't make it this time, I'm in trouble. I, it's clear I found my ceiling. So it differs. And um, as I said, some individuals are very clear on what that is. The, the fear is very well specified, clearly identified. For other individuals, it's not. Other individuals, they just get that sense of dread and they don't know why. And, and often it's about trying to understand what that is. And it affects people in different ways that we can look at somatic anxiety, for example, and that's the physical manifestation of performance anxiety. Mm -hmm. so that's sweating. Sweaty uh, hands, sweating, yeah. Hands, heart palpitations, mm -hmm. that type of thing. Um, other individuals, it, it can be more mental, that it's catastrophizing, that it's negative self-talk, that it's whatever's going on, spiraling in their head. And some individuals have both. Some will only have one and not the other. There's different strategies that are um, suited each one and it's about i suppose figuring out how to best apply that that technology mm. and would those strategies involve stuff like breathing controlled breathing exercises visualization is that where you would be uh you can go you can go that route um breathing is definitely a big one mm. um so say for somatic anxiety if you're the mm. type of person that feels that tension I would always recommend, it's a very old technique, but it's lasted the test of time. It works. It's very simple, which is another reason I like it. And that's just progressive muscle relaxation. And mm. um, so I tend to, to match that with a little bit of breathing, like box breathing, control breathing, whatever it is, whatever I think might work. Um, but essentially what progressive muscle relaxation involves, for any listeners that might not be familiar with it, is it involves going through different muscle groups and, and producing a state of tension and then release. So the simplest example would be if you're going hand through clenching. the body, sorry? Hand clenching, clenching fists, yeah. Clenching fists, and let's say you do that for five seconds as tight as you can, really focusing on that physical feeling of maybe your fingertips digging into your, your palm. Mm. And if you do that for five seconds, the key thing is then you have that period of relaxation where you release that's twice as long. And again, it's getting them to really engage with that feeling. And what you're going to do is, depending on how much time they have, go through the body, all the different muscle groups, and that will tend to help that fight or flight response simmer down. Because what you're really telling your nervous system is it's done its job. Our nervous systems are really well adapted to very particular stressors. It's just unfortunate that the stresses that we face today um, are very unlike those ones. So what you're trying to do is to tell your body it's done its job. Your fight or flight system wants to say, I punched the bear. I ran away from the neighboring tribe, whatever it is. And by engaging in this physical activity of tension and release, you're almost tricking your nervous system into thinking, oh, coast is clear. I mm. did the job. We're all good now. We can calm down, go back to rest and digest. We hear a lot about the flow state, right? And I would imagine that this, the, the, this anxiety um, would really inhibit 
an athlete moving or getting to that flow state? Is, is yeah. that your experience? Flow state is such an interesting topic. Um, and it's something that I've been interested in for years, even before I got into this kind of performance domain. Um, to answer your question uh, quickly, yes, it can. Um, that all of these ruminations, all of this tension, whatever format it takes, whatever expression it has, that's going to be a blockade to that kind of smooth, easy entrance into flow where you're just expressing yourself, you're expressing your ability, you're demonstrating your skill level, you're training, all that sort of stuff. Mm. And the thing that always interests me about flow state is it's relatively poorly understood. It's something that I've discussed an awful lot with my athletes and uh, other performers. And as well as that, I've done an awful lot of research on it and I'm yet to come up with the recipe for getting there. And now the interesting thing is, one of the reasons I'm so interested in it is I'm a musician. A lot of the research on flow state comes with particularly jazz musicians, improvisational musicians. Mm. And, and I found that experience in my teenage years. And that's what really drew me to playing music, that it was a state of kind of authenticity and pure expression. And you felt more you in that moment and than at any other time. And I know how I can get there. And mm. um, but I'm, I'm yet to find an ironclad kind of pathway in there. Sometimes it seems to just emerge. You get other things out of the way. You mm. get their self-confidence up. You get a bit of a challenge level there. They need a high level of skill proficiency as well that's well matched to the task. If all of those little environmental factors are in place, it can emerge. That works really well for some athletes. Some athletes like to kind of go into that autopilot zone. And... Other performers, it doesn't really work. You hear it with like computer coders, you hear it with musicians, doesn't always work. Other artistic domains, you hear it a lot. You know, I don't know how often other business people might experience that or, or some sort of semblance of it. But what I do know is that it works for some people. It's it's the end goal for some people. And for other individuals, it's not. That they like to be consciously engaged and locked in and alert, and that works better for them. Would you say part of the flow state would be becoming completely unself-conscious? A hundred percent. hundred percent. It's a very strange experience. Anybody who's had it themselves, I don't know, Connor, if you've ever had this type of experience. I have. But, uh, perfect. But go Great. on, yeah. And there's, on the one level, at least in my own subjective experience, is mm. one level a loss of self-consciousness, but on the other level, a very qualitatively different level of self-awareness. And mm. um, which are two very different things. I would tend to say that loss of self-consciousness is born out of uh, a lack of consideration or value being placed on consequence, and um, which is kind mm. of a strange one. And um, say for a musician, the musician, when they enter that state, they're not worried about sounding good. And um, they're not worried about pleasing other people. At that moment, it's about self-expression, you mm. know, um, and that's definitely something that I can experience. So it's a lack of consideration of external factors and an external audience, but that's not necessarily accompanied by a lack of self-awareness because a lot of uh, performers tend to say that they feel more in tune with what they're doing than at any other time. And there's this merging of action and awareness. It's not, this process is not deliberate. It's not strategic. It's not planned. And there's not multiple steps ahead being taught through before you choose Oh, that technique, that move, that note is going to be played. But rather, it's this immediacy of 
it the, the music the whatever is flowing out of me right now and it's the best note I could play it's the best technique that I could use so it, it, it's fascinating I, I know myself I've often looked I'm a drummer I'd look at my own arms and hands and think where is that coming from I, I'm like where did I think of that fill it's just there for you mm-hmm. and even though there's that separation in a way between the output and and your internal process and it feels more like you when you identify with it more than any other time when you're playing at least. That's my experience. And I've heard it from a lot of other individuals too. Yeah. I, I play a little bit of guitar and I've, I've had a, I have a little bit of experience in the performance acting and performance space and theater. And I find that when even watching musicians, you can yeah. tell when they're completely unaware of anybody else in the room and they're lost in their own okay. moment. And it is absolutely captivating and it's okay. electric. Like that's music. Yeah, that's music right there, and that's mm. art, and that's expression. Like as a guitarist, like you'll know, like people like Stevie Ray Vaughan. If you see Stevie Ray Vaughan playing the guitar, it is poetry, emotion, and it's that lovely kind of meeting point of extreme technical proficiency, just unbelievable, and then that complete abandon. And that they, they seem to be contradictory almost in a way, but you can see that he is just demonstrating a skill, demonstrating who he is. Um, in a lot of ways, um, and yet it's a beautiful thing. Um, in terms of belief systems and specifically self-limiting beliefs, right? That must play in. Does that play into this performance anxiety, right? So, do you know yeah. where I'm? You know where I'm going with that? Oh, 100 percent. Yeah. Um, no, definitely. Yeah. So, say so to, to talk about performance anxiety in particular. An awful lot of people can be kind of crippled and paralyzed by a certain expectation of performance or um, some sort of self-imposed standard of Mm. performance. And so, again, with the teams that I'm currently working with, there's a lot of individual players that will Mm. say things like, I'm not good enough for this level. Mm. They've they've risen through the ranks and then they kind of think, now I'm going to be found out. This mm. is my ceiling. I was more comfortable at a lower level. And um, right now I'm struggling. Um, and often what you'll see is that they are like sure of this, yet it hasn't been demonstrated yet. Mm. But again, to go to a behavioral um, level, like they haven't demonstrated that they're not good enough. Mm. And I don't want to say yet, but that's the way you have to present it to them. You, you have to kind of present it to them as what's the evidence for that? You had mm. one bad game. Yeah, that was your first game up. You, Second game, yeah, you made one or two mistakes. The, the best player on the team made one or two mistakes too. And what you have to do is, I suppose, take that negative belief and try to bring it back down to the ground and look at the evidence base for it. Because very often there isn't an evidence base, or at least not as strong as an evidence base as they thought. In some cases, maybe there is. Maybe there has been underperforming for a while. Mm. And at that point, I suppose you have to feed confidence. You have to feed self-efficacy. You have to breed a more positive attitude. I suppose a lot of the time I would say to people, okay, fair enough. You know, you haven't performed at the level that you want and it's been relatively consistent. You want to take a step to the next level. We've never addressed this issue and that issue. We've never tried this technique and that strategy. And it's clear that you value this. You want this career. You want to be a musician. You want to win an All-Ireland, whatever it is. You want that. So let's not leave any stone unturned. And you, you almost take the weight off the, the outcome and say, listen, why don't we give this a shot for six months? If we don't see any upturn, yeah, maybe. Maybe you're right and I'm wrong. You're not good enough. 
you know, and very often that's not the case because you they'll see a little bit of a jump and that's getting your foot in the door and that's opening people's minds to maybe trying things a little bit differently. That, that usually works. We'll see an upturn in performance and then slowly but surely they'll go from a three out of 10 to performance to a five out of 10 performance and then a six or a seven and then they'll have a great game and they might think I belong here because one of the really limiting beliefs and um, particularly when we look at things like locus of control and we look at self-efficacy would be like people uh, lacking a sense of belonging and, and they think that now nah, i'm going to be found out imposter syndrome would essentially be a similar concept i don't belong here I, I don't belong here and and what tends to emerge from that and follow from that is i don't belong here because i'm not like everybody else or i'm not as capable of everybody else or everybody has the same skill set and i have a different one so then the only conclusion you can draw is I'm going to get found out sooner or later. Um, and essentially that lack of a sense of belonging ultimately leads to disengagement. And a lot of the time, if I see somebody struggling, that's like number one priority. Let's avoid disengagement because as long as they stay swinging, as long as they stay in the fight, we can get improvements. But as soon as they opt out, obviously all is lost at that point, or at least it's very difficult to, to bring it back. In, in acting and performance, they talk about becoming the role, right? So no actor, like Marlon Brando, when he got the Godfather role, I mean, he didn't think for a second that he was the Godfather. Yeah. It was through a process of discovery and incremental yeah. steps mm. that you become that role. And it's three, six, 12 months later that you, you actually inhabit it. And there is a process to go through there. Yeah, and I suppose my brother's an actor too, so I would have a little bit of insight in this sort of stuff. I suppose it's being comfortable with that mm. discovery process and being comfortable that you're a work in progress and you might not inhabit that role or find that part of yourself to connect with for a month or six months or a year. But a lot of art, generally speaking, and a lot of life is being comfortable with making mistakes, being comfortable, maybe going down the wrong road for a little bit, but still engaging, still moving forward and still trying really and um, yeah, it's exactly the same thing. I suppose we're trying to teach them to inhabit the role of you're good enough at this level. You belong here. You, mm -hmm. You've earned this position, whatever it is. I suppose it's similar. You could you could draw tangents. Um, at the highest levels, um, in your view, is from your perspective, is it natural talent or work ethic that's the significant driver or a combination? Uh, I mean, obviously, there's a combination of both. But what is the significant factor? It, it obviously is both. Um, but if we're talking about what separates the truly, truly elite, the, you know, the top five against the top 100, what you're likely going to see is at the very high level, everybody has worked hard, you know, in any kind of well-established profession, sport, activity, there's an awful lot of people that want to be at the top table. There's an awful lot of people that want to be the best in the world that drives standards up. So essentially high performers are all going to be extremely hard workers. Now you do get flukes. Very often those flukes can be genetic freaks or people who have incredible opportunities or people that don't really belong to be there, uh, deserve to be there uh, to begin with. But you're not going to see a high level business person, a high level musician or an elite level musician, an elite level sports person that hasn't done an absolute mammoth level of work. But where natural ability factors in is I often think of, okay, there's such a thing as giftedness. 
Okay, fair enough that we all inherit genetic material. Some um, genetic inheritances can lead you towards a higher ceiling in some areas rather than others. Now, mm-hmm. there's probably less evidence demonstrating specific genetic inheritances with specific gifts and specific domains. You know, it's not as if we can say, if you have this gene, you're going to be a musical genius. If you have that gene, you're going to be an entrepreneur. We don't know enough of that. And indeed, there's some researchers that will say there's pretty much no evidence. You know, there's some researchers in the area that will say, other than physical size, say things like height, things like hand size, hmm. and there's not a lot of evidence for any other genetic gift. I would definitely wouldn't go that far. But what I would say is, okay, there does seem to be differences in genetic inheritance. What that informs is perhaps your ultimate level of performance, your ceiling. Hmm. And so it by itself is never going to be enough. Everybody can think of somebody in their life that had an incredible gift for something and then just let it slide. They didn't have the discipline. They didn't work hard. And then everybody else caught up, essentially. And what I would tend to say is that the elite performer probably has that genetic makeup that gives them the advantage, but they've worked hard enough to make sure they hit that ceiling. Um, and that's really what I'm trying to do with pretty much everybody I work with, because people will come to me with that. They'll say, I, I don't have the gift for it. Surely I can't be great. Mm. And I can't say that they can be great. What I can say is, OK, well, that attitude is going to be problematic, because if you do indeed have a ceiling, you're never mm. going to get close to it if you don't put in that incredible work. So by putting in the incredible work, you make good on that promise. You make good on that level of potential. The elites have the genetic gift, they have the higher ceiling, and they put up the work to make sure they make good on that promise in most cases. I would imagine you are working with people that have to cope with failure. Yeah. Right? And they have to they have to absorb and that has a there's a price for that and, and an emotional impact. How how would you go about working or, or addressing failure at, a, at an elite level? So um it will always be informed um by my understanding of the individual by the individual's personality profile. And um, mm-hmm. so again, to, to give you a very truncated kind of understanding of what kind of the equation is, what I'm trying to do early doors is I need to keep them engaged. That's the first priority. I need to keep them in the funny. Okay. And um, so what we tend to have to do there is we have to reconnect with values. We have to reconnect with motivation. And then often we have to reevaluate what that failure means. I, I wouldn't use the word failure because mm-hmm there's a there's a kind of very conclusive it's loaded that word. yeah 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 it's loaded and it seems to be the word failure is very very black and white and mm-hmm. it's very full stop it's kind of fatalistic in a way whereas in the course of any career in the course of any uh, sport and career whatever it is it's never that black and white i tend to view them as setbacks i tend to view them as blips because it's only one segment one little uh, roadblock on a longer road. So it's very rare that you have any sort of instance that objectively will rule you out for success in, in any field. It's, it's very rare that there's a dead end that people come up to and then they have to accept that they, they can't succeed, they can't prosper. So mm-hmm. sometimes it's sharing that information um, with individuals. What I try to do is uh, help them reevaluate what it means. You know, like the, the saying, like, win or learn, you know, it is quite popular now. And there's there's wisdom in that. And um, what I would tend to present to individuals would be, okay, let's view this as a setback and let's view it as a learning experience. And I think what often works with individuals is 
um, reframing this failure as um, as an instance in which we learned what doesn't work, which brings us closer to learning what does work. Mm. So, okay, we did this, we did that, we did the other thing. That didn't get you where you need to go. So let's have a look at which of these we should keep and which of these we can get rid of. And in that way, you're actually reframing it. They feel that the setback, the failure takes them further away from the goal. But actually, it brings them closer to the goal because it means that we won't have to waste time on strategies, techniques that don't work. And that goes back to the point we mentioned earlier in the context of acting, being comfortable with, I suppose, giving things a bash, trial and error, not having to have the right answer straight away and taking that bit of time to figure out the recipe um, for success. So it's often reevaluating. And besides that, that would be the immediate. Besides that, from day one, if I feel, if based on the data collected on the individual, if I feel that they would be a risk for disengagement, following setback or failure, mm-hmm. I would have already worked on that, hopefully. I will always have built up that confidence, that belief, and um, that strength, that discipline, commitment, whatever they need, even emotional stability often is something I have to work with, um, to make sure that that hit isn't as hard as it would have been. Um, some people get crushed by setbacks. Mm. Other people, they brush it off. I want everybody to be able to learn from it, but not be crippled by the blow of the loss. So if an individual has uh, high levels of neuroticism, you know, if they're quite prone to uh, severe, significant emotional experiences, if they're quite reactive in that way, I want to have already given them strategies to compensate for that. I'm not trying to change who they are, but I'm going to help them bolster and themselves against the deleterious impact of of emotional and um, emotional loss or, or failure, whatever it is. That self-efficacy we have to improve because if they do not feel that they can overcome this challenge, why would they continue? It's simple. If they feel that no, okay, I've been found out, I'm not able, I'm not going to do this anymore. I have to have built up that through mastery experiences. I have to give them wins essentially, and um, and we might have to manufacture wins in a way so that the loss isn't as impactful. Mm. A lot of different things we do on that side. And then, as well as that, and I think this is, the more I realize um, what it is that I'm doing, the more I realize my influences. And I think this is heavily influenced by uh, acceptance and commitment therapy people might be familiar with. And um, because that was a, a real trend in the department in Minute, and I have a lot of colleagues that do this. And, and basically the idea of acceptance commitment therapy is, I suppose, does what it says on the tin, we're not going to fight negative emotions. We're not going to invalidate negative emotions. If you're frustrated, if you're annoyed, if you're anxious, there's a wisdom in that. Let, let's have a look at that. What, what can these things tell us? And mm. um, We're going to accept um, the negative emotions and, and, again, trust that they're going to be valuable to us. And then it's all about committing to some sort of valued action. So, okay, this is told us some. How do we make sure this doesn't happen again? And... Um, and then I suppose we just um, want to take that action. We just want to, to follow it through. So there's a lot of even mindfulness in there. There's a lot of meditation in there that being able to observe an emotional experience, have that separation. Um, and meditation is something that I, I tend to recommend for most athletes. So there's a lot of different approaches. We, we kind of reorient our understanding of what the failure or setback actually means. And we'll have bolstered and the kind of safeguards against the truly negative impacts of a setback. And then we accept that learning and try to figure out how to address any issues or, or continue on the path. 
Um, a couple of last questions. I'm very conscious of your time. Um, in terms of intrinsic and extrinsic mo motivation, how significant and impactful can extrinsic rewards, I'm thinking of win bonuses and, and stuff like that, be on driving and accelerating performance, or is it intrinsic primarily? It, it differs. Um, what I would always tend to say to anybody I work with is, I don't care what motivates you. It does not interest me. I'm going to find out precisely what it is, but it doesn't bother me if it's intrinsic, extrinsic, or one of the various types of motivation um, in between. We just need to know how to harness it. Mm. Now, what I would say is, if I could pick, I prefer it to be intrinsic. Um, or at least a more internally derived motivation. There's other shades of gray in between those two. But um, I prefer to be on the intrinsic, internally derived form because very simply, it's it's if it's not omnipresent, it's more consistent in its presence than external is. So, you know, if you're waiting on the bonus, that might be end of the month, that might be every quarter, that might be, I don't know, end of the year, wherever it is. One of the things that I think a lot of people are familiar with is the idea that like we're good with short-term goals, we're good mm. with immediate gratification, we're not very good at delayed gratification. And, and often um, it is an individual's ability to delay gratification, to continue to work, even though there is not that steady stream of reinforcement, that can often be the difference. With intrinsic motivation, it, there's, there's short-term benefits. It, like if you love your job, day in, day out, the nitty gritty, the nuts and bolts of it. If you love your sport, your music, you get that boost of reinforcement every day. Mm. Every time you pick up your instrument, you enjoy it pretty much. Mm. And you get that boost of reinforcement that will breed commitment, that will breed discipline, that will breed engagement. So if it's intrinsically motivated, it's easy to work with because I'm not trying to build in that consistent stream of reinforcement. Because if it's not reinforcing, people's engagement's going to waver. They're not going to do it. People do what's enjoyable. They don't do what's not typically. Hmm. And with extrinsic motivation, the problem is it's long-term reward. If it's, if, the, um, if it's the bonus, if it's the trophy at the end of the season, whatever it is, because that's a long-term goal, engagement can waver. And maybe they don't put in 100% effort day in, day out, because at the end of those days, there's no trophy. Uh, even if it's not that, even if it's more social, if you're the type of person that's motivated by getting a pat on the back by somebody mm. whose opinion you value, a family member, whatever it is, a boss, that pat on the back's not always going to be there. And often to truly succeed, you have to put in that donkey work behind closed doors. And there's nobody there to reward you if you're extrinsically motivated. Like look at Stevie Ray Vaughan again. He, how many hours do you think he put into practicing scales day in, day out as a teenager? Nobody was going, oh my God, Stevie Ray Vaughan, can you sell out the biggest arenas? Nobody's giving him a Grammy award. He just loves it, so he'll do it. If you're the guitarist that needs that adulation from the fans, why would you continue to do your seven hours of practice when they're not there? Mm -hmm. So I suppose I would prefer it to be internally derived. If it's not, that's not a problem. We just have to connect with it and we need to make sure that there's a schedule of reinforcement there that will sustain the commitment. And um, so sometimes that has to be, again, manufactured in a way. Sometimes that could be a cheat day or a little reward, whatever it is. And um, we need to give them that boost to keep them, uh, keep them engaging. If you were, hypothetically speaking, you were working with a technology company. Yeah. in the city yeah. and you had a team 
of say high performers and you wanted to take them to an elite level say you're a consulting for one of the major tech companies a sales organization yeah where would you start there would you do um, individual assessments would, would it be observation based it always starts with individual assessment. It, again, it's always getting the hard data. So it's funny you would ask me that because I'm currently working with a colleague of mine to develop an assessment battery that will do just that, to look at very specific professions or specific uh, roles and understand, well, what's the stuff you need to be a performer there? Now, I'll take a lot of the work that I've already done, and um, but there's going to be some specificity to it too. But the first thing is always... Okay, I need to understand these people. I need to understand their capabilities. I need to understand any potential obstacles. I need to understand what makes them tick. I need to understand how to get them to communicate with each other. That's always going to be first. That's always kind of ground zero. I need data that I can rely upon. Then it's always matching that to, okay, let's see what it's like on the ground. So let's have a look at how these individuals engage with each other. Let's have an interview one-on-one with all these individuals in which I'll go through the report and I'll see how it lands. Let's talk about goals. And because I I don't know, maybe it's just me. A lot of people think that success is a bit more mystical than it is, a bit more enigmatic. Now, that being said, I would always focus on process rather than outcome. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I can't guarantee that profits go up by 25%. I can't guarantee the Olympic gold medal. But what I can guarantee is that I'll get you doing all the right things that will put you in with a good shot of it. I, I can never control that last little bit. That's not for me. You know, the, the man has to go into the arena himself. You yeah, know, you can't, do the, you can't do the fight for them. I can't do the fight for them. And I can't even control um, exactly the outcome of, mm. of their efforts in that way. But what I can always say to somebody is, I can get you doing the right things. And I can get the rubbish and the obstacles out of your way to give you the best chance of success. So um, once we have the information on the individual level, it's about, I suppose, understanding goals. And if we're looking at a group, it's understanding leadership structure. It's understanding communication style. It's understanding how cohesive the group is and how the individual roles relate to each other, how individual employees relate to each other. And, And then from that point forward, it's, okay, let's get, the rubbish out of the way let's get all the things that are going to hold this group back out of the way and let's try to bolster the things that they need to perform and um, but it's always about specifically adapting my knowledge my understanding of what they need to their specific goals i'm not looking at success in general terms i'm looking at success in their specifically defined form. what do you want to do and then how do we get them there um last question What's exciting you in the space? Is there any recent developments that we're not aware of? What is exciting for you right now in behavioral psychology and high performance? That's a good question. Let me see. Um, I, I suppose in my particular field of performance, if you look at performance psychology, if you look at sports psychology, um, first off, sports psychology has been around for quite a while. Performance psychology hasn't been so much but it, it's really refreshing to be able to see that people from a wide variety of contexts and domains are starting to understand the value that a psychological understanding of performance can provide. You know, um, whereas before, even within sport, you look at the, the trials and tribulations early sports psychologists had to get go through, what hoops they had to jump through. The first ever sports psychologist was hired by the Chicago Cubs after the Chicago Cubs had tried a voodoo doctor. 
Hmm. I was in the 50s. So like that, that hmm. was the lane that we were in before. But now hmm. we're starting to see people are far more open and um, to giving this a shot and they understand the value of all these sorts of things. So in a kind of application perspective, what excites me is all the different areas we can now go into. You know, for a long time, we were begrudgingly included in a sporting context. But now when I see the all different people that I can work with that, that can identify the value that this type of knowledge um, can provide, for me on a personal level, it gives me new challenges. It gives me new context domain goals. You know, I'm constantly learning about the challenges, the difficulties of different activities. You know, like I'm, to give you a simple example, I'm working with sports people that performed in sports that I've never heard of. You know, like last year I worked with a five-time national champion in a sport, a sailing uh, sport that I, I had no idea of. And it's great for me to go in and go, okay, what's demanded of him? What does he need to be able to do? What, what's the nature of the activity? And then explore it that way. The other thing from a more research perspective, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, is um, I, I get really excited when I look at the, the high quality research that is being done on the benefits of meditation and mindfulness. Um, because I was a skeptic. I was a cynic uh, at one point in time that I thought was a bit too hippy-dippy. I said I don't like the softer, fluffier side. Mm. I thought that's where meditation belonged. But now we're getting over the last 10, 20 years, more and more research looking at the neurological benefits, you know, anatomically speaking, looking at brain structure differences mm. and looking at functional differences, obviously, and then performance outcomes as a result of whatever type of meditation people are engaging in. That's really exciting because I think if I was to give people one little tool that would help mitigate many of the issues people have in performance, like it might be meditation. Um, because the real value of meditation is it um, it allows you to control attention. And in performance and sports psychology, that's something that's been underestimated, I think, that we've been kind of skirting around it a little bit. But we have to remember, attention is the gateway to consciousness. Attention is the gateway to your world. Mm. And if you want to make sure you engage with the environment in an effective way, whatever that means, you need to have a firm grasp on your attention. And in today's world, we see that grasp is definitely slipping. Meditation allows you to keep a firm hold of that spotlight. There are lots of competing forces for attention, the, the, the tech companies, the social media companies. Andrew Huberman, Sam Harris have done a lot of brilliant work in that space yeah. um, and are vocal yeah. about uh, mindfulness and meditation. Dylan yeah. Colbert, um, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating. Thanks, Mill. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. Pleasure.